Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, I just want to start, actually, just by showing a brief bit of testimony, uh, just from this week. Uh, on, as many of you will know, we, we spent a couple of days this week at a conference with some of the church leaders from the, the group of churches that were a part of New Ground, and the conference actually was in, in Belgium. Um, and Kat and I were travelling, uh, driving there, uh, so we, we took the, the tunnel. Um, but we got we got to uh, Folkestone, where, where the tunnel crossing is, uh, in the car. And as we were as we come to the park area for it, our, our car just started making the most horrendous grinding, screeching noises. Not just like slightly concerning, but like I probably shouldn't move another kind of uh, foot forward kind of concerning. Like this this is sounding like hundreds of pounds worth of damage kind of worrying. Um, and so I got out of the car, had a look, had no idea what it was. It, it seemed to be mainly when I was turning right head off, I couldn't work it out. Had a look like in and around the, the wheel, couldn't see anything. Um, and I was getting worried. And I, I was thinking, we can't go. Like we, we, we can't go with a car like this. I don't want to break down you know, whilst we're on the continent. I'm not even sure if I'll break down because I can cover it. Um, and Kat said, Kat having far more faith than I have, just said, why don't we just pray for the car? Just pray about it. Uh, which, yeah, just had to be the, the first one to think of that rather than you ever. <laughs> Um, and so we just we just said a quick prayer. Just said, God, we you know we we think that it's right for us to be at this conference. We want to go. I have no idea what's wrong with the car. It sounds horrendous. Um, please just make it right. Drove away. Absolutely no noise whatsoever. Nothing at all. Drove over to North. Drove through Europe all the way there, all the way back. Drove home again uh, yesterday. Not a peep out of it. Just uh, yeah. <laughs> saying, God, completely <laughs> So yeah, I just wanted to give give God the glory, and yeah, <laughs> even just those those little things that I mean, if we hadn't trusted in God for that in that moment, we may have been prevented from going to the conference and from hearing uh, some of the amazing teaching and being encouraged by being with other leaders. And yeah, Kat just said afterwards, like, it's, it's spiritual attack. Like the devil is wanting to to put those things in the way to stop us from being able to worship and glorify and to meet with other Christians and uh, we're having on it. So just wanted to share this with you. Um, this, we're going through a series in Ephesians at the moment. Uh, Andy did the first half of chapter 2 of Ephesians uh, last week and I'm going to be looking at the second half of the same chapter. This is quite a difficult passage. It's quite complex due to kind of cultural uh, and just the level of time really since this has been written, things have changed and it's a little bit difficult for us to get to put ourselves in the mindset and in the context of uh, when this was written and who it was written to. So I want to just tell you a story before we read the passage uh, that will hopefully help to make it a little bit clearer. Um, it will take me a few minutes to, to tell the story but it will hopefully help, help to make the passage a lot more straightforward when uh, we come to it shortly. So this story is about a prison. It's about a prison, uh, and it's quite an unusual prison in that everybody in this prison has been given a death sentence. Every single person is awaiting uh, a death sentence. There are four people in this prison in particular, Jacob, Hannah, Jen and Ben, that are here. that is actually Ben Fleming, but <laughs> that's not really relevant. Um, but I, I, I'll explain about that later. But there are there are two wings to this prison. As you can see, there's a there's a wing at the top there and a wing at the bottom. 
Um, I'm going to call them wing, wing one and wing two of this prison. Uh, and it's a mixed gender prison as well, as you can see, but it doesn't, that, it doesn't really matter. But, uh, um, so the, these two wings uh, of this prison, wing, wing one and wing two, wing one is down here uh, with Ben and Jen, and then wing two up at the top with Hannah and Jacob. And uh, they keep themselves largely to themselves. So they have these, these two wings of the prison, but people don't really mix. You see, the wing one people down here at the bottom, they, they know that they're going to die. They know that they've been given this life sentence. Some of them will use that to kind of do whatever they like. Since there can't be any worse consequences, they, they just do uh, whatever they want. And they, they go out and just try and have as much good time as they can. Uh, others seem kind of willfully ignorant of the fact that they're going to die, preferring instead to think about other things, to focus their minds and their attentions elsewhere. And still others are terrified of the fact that they're going to die and, and either hide it well or become maybe depressed and withdrawn. But wing two, um, up at the top, is very different. Wing two is very different because for some reason, despite the situation they're in, they seem to have hope. They believe that someone will come into the prison, overthrow the guards, and release those in wing two, and that they will rule the prison together. But only for those in wing two. As you can imagine, this idea doesn't go down too well with uh, Jen and with Ben and with all the others in wing one at the bottom. Most of the, the wing oneers think it's a load of rubbish, um, and if it is true, they don't much like the idea of being ruled by the wing two inmates. But Jacob, Hannah, and the other wing two inmates hold firm to their convictions that this will happen. So much so that their way of life seems to revolve around them being wing two inmates. Uh, they have different eating habits to the wing one inmates. Uh, they have special routines for different days of the week. Uh, and they all get a special piercing to show that they're part of the wing two group. They talk often together about how great it is to be uh, part of wing two and not wing one which only serves to infuriate the wing one inmates more. Over time, uh, these, these two wings become more and more separate, uh, to the point where they, they both look down on each other, and maybe have even come to despise one another. There is very obvious division between them. The thick wall that divides the, the two wings, the wing one and wing two, um, is kind of seen by both sides as being a good thing, really, a good thing for keeping the other side separate. Even when they're not in their respective wings and maybe they're out in the courtyard together, they don't really mix and there's clear hostility between them. And so it goes on, day after day. And one day, Hannah, uh, up at the top, awakes and sees Jacob outside of his cell. Amazed and very concerned, she asks what he's doing and why he isn't locked in the cell like everybody else at that stage. Haven't you heard the news? No, what news? We're free to go. A visitor came to the prison last night and offered to be a, a visitor, sorry, came to the prison last night and offered to be executed himself in return for our freedom. What? Who? I don't know, some, some guy who hadn't even done anything wrong. The guards came and opened my cell and told me that I was free to go. What, and you believe them? It hadn't crossed your mind that maybe this was some kind of a trick. I think you're making a big mistake. I, I don't know, I don't think so. The, the guards haven't tried to rearrest me. They've just said to go and to stop doing the things 
that put me in prison in the first place. But Hannah remained unconvinced. So in the end, Jacob just leaves uh, and continues on and walks out of the prison. A little while later, Jan, down here, also passes Hannah's cell. What are you doing in wing two? You should be in wing one with the others. I should be, but I've, I've just been released from my cell and told I can go free. But the huge wall between our wings has collapsed and I'm off to enjoy my freedom. See ya, wouldn't want to be ya. Sure, sure enough, uh, as Hannah looks out from her cell, she can see that the big wall that once divided these two wings had come down. And she can see people from both wings coming out of their cells and walking out of the prison. And she looked across and saw that Ben was still in his cell. Well, things that sound too good to be true usually are, he thought to himself, so he just stayed put. Out of the prison, uh, on, the, on the outside, those from the two wings ventured out to newfound freedom. But even though there was now no wall to separate them, those from wing one seemed to venture off together, and those from wing two also seemed to leave by themselves. What had divided them in the prison somehow still remained on the outside, even though there were no longer inmates and were now free. Those from wing two still thought they were better than those from wings one, because uh, they, they had these traditions and these, uh, these patterns of life that wing one people didn't seem to have, and were confused and a bit surprised that the wing one inmates had been allowed to walk free at all. And the wing one inmates, who were no longer inmates, uh, still hated them because of that. And even though they were now on the outside, they still thought of themselves as wing one inmates and wing two inmates, even though they were now free people. And that is where I'm going to end the story, because hopefully after I've explained a little bit about this, what the story means, hopefully you'll see that this is very similar to the situation, actually, that Paul is writing to address. You see, the prison is the world in which we live. More specifically, it's the world 2,000 years ago. Wing 1, uh, down the bottom, represents the Gentiles. They're non-Jews, uh, and Wing 2 are the Jewish people. And their particular habits, their kind of eating habits, their piercings, uh, are the Jewish laws and traditions and circumcision. And obviously the sacrificial man that I talked about, the man who, the, the free man who gave his life, is Jesus Christ. You see, the Jews expected uh, a saviour, but they thought that it would be someone who would come in, who would come in physical power, overthrow the Romans, and make the Israelite nation powerful again. Instead, Jesus came to die, and in doing so, to pay the punishment that every single person, Jew or Gentile, deserves. He died instead of them. And yet, sadly, there are many from both sides who didn't receive this good news and who didn't receive the freedom that Jesus had won. And even those who did receive the good news still seem to have this separation, this division between the Jews and the Gentiles, uh, even though they were both saved by grace and by faith in Jesus Christ. So turn with me, if you've got your Bibles, to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to start reading from verse 11. I'm going to read the passage today in three separate sections, uh, a few verses at a time. Hopefully just to make it a bit clearer. So Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 to 13 says this. 
Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul, Paul is saying, have you already forgotten that just, just a short while ago you were separated from Christ? You had no hope. You were living, as it were, in wing one. You, you didn't have hope. And yet now Jesus Christ has come in. Yes, you, you have the Jews who are calling you the uncircumcision. Um, but do you not remember that you weren't even a part of this faith until you were recently brought in? You were separated from Christ. But now you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Um, I've got two nieces. Uh, This is their picture. This is them um, at the the Winnie the Pooh woods that you can go to look at. I can't remember what it's called now, but yeah, you can go and uh, go around various bits. Uh, We did that with them a while back. But uh, at Christmas time, uh, just just gone. My older sister, uh, who children, uh, she wanted to make a very clear point of for Christmas presents. She didn't just want them to get their presents, to open them, to move on to the next one, to open it, see what it is, move on to the next one, open it. Um, my older sister wanted very clearly for the present to be given by whoever it was, whoever it was from, for them to hand it to the child, for them to open it, look at it, uh, acknowledge what it was, um, and say thank you for it. It's a very difficult task for a child. <laughs> but point being that these gifts were just that. They're gifts. They're not entitlements. She didn't want the children to grow up with a sense of, this is what I'm owed, this is just what I get at Christmas because this is something that I should have. And she, want, she wanted to instill in the children a sense of, actually, this is a gift that's been given by somebody. Somebody loves you enough and has kind of spent their time and their money uh, to choose a present for you, um, and that should be acknowledged. We live in a world of uh, entitlement. Often teenagers can expect smartphones, laptops, driving lessons, etc., etc., as, as a right rather than as a privilege, as something that just because everybody else has one, this is something that I should have, or I need to have, um, and actually it's not, it's not a privilege, it's not a gift, it's, it's something that uh, is, a, is a right. And as adults, we can get sucked into that same mindset of entitlement. Am I, am I entitled to uh, be healthy and have kind of good healthcare, to an enjoyable job, to a meaningful, lifelong, intimate relationship, children, uh, possessions, a house, the latest technology. Are these things, are these things entitlements or are they gifts? And even, even life itself, right? we, we have an expectation that we will live to 70, 80, but that, that isn't an entitlement, that's a gift of God. We take these things for granted. We do, but each of them is a precious gift. And one of the other things that we take for granted in this country is religious freedom and expression. We have to be careful not to see our faith as something that we are entitled to. We, we kind of think, well, we can be Christians because we live in a Christian country. 
Um, but the reality is that it's not. It's not our choice. It's because we're here, because we're in this Christian country, we feel like we're free to choose what to believe. We're free to be Christians if we want, or Muslims, or Jews, or whatever else. But our faith and our salvation is entirely a gift from God. And if we get into the mindset that I've chosen to be a Christian, therefore, you know, it's my right because I'm in this country, because somehow uh, I'm British, or if you're not British, whatever, it's, it's my right to choose to be a Christian, to choose to follow God, then we lose sight of the fact that our salvation is entirely the gift of God. And, and that's partly what Paul is writing to the Gentiles to get in their minds. You guys are not entitled to be Christians. You guys are not entitled to salvation. It's been given to you. Jesus has laid down his life as a gift for you. Jesus has laid down his life so that you can be brought near. You who are once far off have been brought near. It's not something that you've done. It's not a choice that you've made. Jesus laid down his life and shed his blood so that you can have salvation. This whole chapter is written to the Gentiles to remind them of the position they were in before and where they are now. To remind them of the fact that they were separate. And Andy preached last week on, by faith alone you have been saved. It's not your own doing. It's not a reason for you to boast. What are you doing boasting in your salvation? You haven't done anything to contribute towards it. It is a gift of God. And the Gentiles were starting to boast in their salvation, particularly to the the Jews. Uh, as though they had in some way gained their own salvation. And Paul says, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is entirely the work of Jesus. You who are once far off have now been brought near. And so it, it, it's similar to our kind of prison story that we were looking at. You, you, you have uh, on the outside the, still the, this, this tension and this rivalry and, and this kind of boasting between these two groups of people, even though they both just walked out of the same prison and neither of them in any way has, has done anything to help themselves to get out of that prison. <laughs> they, were, they were let free because of this man who had laid down his life. And so Paul's almost giving them a slap upside the head and saying, think about just the, the very recent past. How are you so easily slipping into this mentality of entitlement? And it, and it changes our mindset with other things. You see, if we have a mindset of entitlement rather than a mindset of this gift, this grace, then it changes other things. You see, when we have a mindset of entitlement, then we have an expectation of things. We have an expectation uh, of certain rights as, as a Christian and, and just in life in general, as opposed to recognising that it's a gift of God and, and having an attitude of gratitude. When we believe that we have some way uh, earned something or that we somehow deserve something or have a right to something, they will boast of that and say, yeah, this is mine, this is whatever, this is my house, uh, or this is how much I earn, I deserve this, this is my wage, I'm boasting in that because uh, this is my right. Rather than an attitude of thankfulness because you recognise that it's a gift, uh, something that's been given to you that you have no way earned. Entitlement breeds an attitude of selfishness. Well, why should I, why should I, you know, do anything to help other people? Why should I use my time to help others? I'm, I'm entitled to this life that I have, this salvation that I have, this 
whatever, this position, as opposed to when we recognise that everything that we have is a gift from God, our salvation, our church family, and it gives us an attitude of wanting to serve and step out and to thank God for what he's done in, as an attitude of uh, service, rather than giving begrudgingly. When we recognise that we've been given a great gift that we can't pay back, it makes us more generous and want to give to others. And the last one is what I want to focus on a bit more. You can just about see it. If you believe that all that you have and all that you've been given is actually just something that you're entitled to, it can make you prejudice against others who receive the same thing. Even though they've been, you've been given a gift and they've been given the same gift, in this situation, it was making the, it was making the Jews and the Gentiles rivals because they'd been given something that they didn't think that they deserved and that, that they did deserve and that the others didn't. And Paul's saying, neither of you deserve this. Not, you need to get in your mind that neither of you deserve this gift of salvation. And stop being prejudiced against the other party. Instead, we should have hearts of compassion in saying, we've been given this incredible gift Actually, we need to come to spread it and to give it to as many others as possible. And so he continues on in uh, the next few verses. We're going to read from 14 to 18. It says this. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul's saying, you're both one people. You need to stop thinking about yourself as two. You're being made into one person, one people group. The, uh, I'm just going to talk for a moment about this dividing wall of hostility. In the temple where the Jews worshipped God, there was different courts uh, in the Jewish temple. You had the very outside of the temple was the court of the Gentiles, so that's where the non-Jews were allowed to be. And then within that you had the court of the women, so Jewish women were allowed within that next section of the court. And then you had, uh, within that, you had the courts for the, the Jewish men, the Israelites. Within that again, you have the courts for the priests, so those who uh, were priests were allowed to enter in even further. And then the fifth kind of level of this temple, the central part, was the most holy place. And that's the place where the high priest was allowed to go once in a year to meet with God. So if you imagine that they considered the presence of God to be in this most holy place in the centre, and yet the Gentiles were only allowed in this outer ring, like the furthest away, and various stages, various walls were stopping people from getting closer. Uh, and it wasn't just like a suggestion, it wasn't just like a, you know, you, I wouldn't recommend going any further if you're a Gentile. This was a serious thing. If there were kind of signs on the wall uh, saying to the Gentiles, if you go past this wall, you will die. Uh, they were not allowed into the inner parts of this temple. Uh, I'm going to show you a picture, which I'm going to 
come back to in a second. There have been lots of talk um, recently. Ooh, sorry, that's a passage you just read. There have been lots of talk recently about walls uh, in the in the states. <laughs> you might have heard in recent months uh, the talking of building a very large dividing wall, and this is nothing new. In Northern Ireland, uh, suicide bomber walls with security checkpoints, huge concrete walls with chain link and barbed wire on the top, dividing Catholic and Protestant sections of the city. In South Africa, we see kind of the, the same thing. Uh, many of the blacks living in poor townships, surrounded by enormous walls, and then whites often living sometimes in more affluent communities, also surrounded by very high walls with barbed wire with armed guards, uh, even to get into their neighbourhoods. When you enter into Israel, there are walls literally everywhere. Uh, You have the Christian quarter and the Muslim quarter and the Jewish quarter, and they're all very, very much divided. You have to pass through security checkpoints at certain times to actually go from one area to another. And the dividing walls are protected by soldiers with guns, and unless you have permission, you are not allowed to even pass from certain sections of the city into others. What's interesting is that physical realities often illustrate spiritual realities. That when we see barriers uh, between people, when when we see these barriers, they often represent spiritual barriers as well. Dividing walls often reflect a heart of distrust, of prejudice, hatred, of disunity. And so when those walls come down, the significance is often much greater than just the physical change, the fact that there's no longer a wall there. Perhaps the most famous dividing wall, or one that often comes to mind, is this one in Berlin, where a city was literally separated into two sides, with people unable to pass freely between the two, and this wall was erected very, very quickly. But in November 1989, the wall came down, and these were the seats. People's identity was no longer East German or West German, but simply as German people. Likewise, when Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles, he was saying, you're no longer Jews and Gentiles, but followers of Christ. You are one people. You are the same. You are one people. Through his death, he destroyed the hate, which was like a wall between Jews and Gentiles, and so to make them united. Jesus died not just to save the Jews, but the whole world. Uh, as Andy shared last week, John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whosoever. Jesus was... Uh, was uh, Expanding out to the whole world, this is no longer just for the Jews, this is for all people, for all time. And he continues to break down the dividing walls in our society. And if we could just go back to the temple for a moment, this wasn't just a case of the outside wall being broken down. This wasn't just a case of the wall between the Gentiles and the Jews being broken down. This was the Holy of Holies, that dividing wall that that actually only one person once a year could go and meet with the living God. That very barrier was broken down. 
It says that the, the temple curtain was torn in two, signifying that actually people can now have direct relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. Jesus' death on the cross meant that we can have direct access to God. That, that division, that separation has come down, that wall had been broken down. And actually we have access to God, we can speak to him personally, we don't have to go through, uh, through a priest, through a high priest, we can go to God directly ourselves. And so I, just, I wanted to think about these walls of division some more. I think probably for most of us, this kind of wall between the Jews and the Gentiles isn't necessarily something that keeps us up at night, or uh, that we think about a lot. But there may be other people, other people groups, that you do think about a lot. I want to ask, do you have any prejudices? Who do you distrust? Who do you hate, even? Who are you not united with? Uh, whilst we were away these last couple of days, Kat uh, asked, uh, the group asked Andy and Jane and Aaron and Megan and myself, where would you least like God to send you? <laughs> it, was, it was just sort of a question thrown out there. Often we'll sort of talk about where, where we feel called to or where would you like to go. But the question was, where would you least like for God to send you in the world? Uh, maybe as a missionary or to live. Um, and, yeah, as, as we sort of thought about it and discussed it some more, um, it, it made me think about what I was going to be preaching on this morning and just thought, well, actually, your answer to that question may well give you a clue as to the types of people that you maybe have prejudices, maybe even hidden prejudices, or in the back of your mind, uh, people groups that you actually you don't really like that much. But X1, we need to put our prejudices to death. No one is beyond the good news of the gospel. Black and white, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, vote leavers, vote remainers, farmers, bankers, hairdressers, benefit chiefs, Hillary supporters, Trump supporters, those in hot schools, hospitals, prisons, residents of South Oxy and Casabria alike, pensioners, school children, Somalian pirates, corrupt FIFA officials, overpaid footballers, underpaid NHS workers, traffic wardens. <laughs> Racists, rapists, those who perpetuate slavery, those who work to eradicate it. Jews, Muslims, Hindus, atheists, Catholics, ex-Wallis. No one is too good or too bad to receive the gospel. No one is entitled because of something that they've done good, and no one is disqualified because of something they've done bad. That is the scandal of the gospel, excellent. We're all in the same boat together, we're all in the same situation. We all need Jesus Christ to be our sacrifice. None of us is any more any closer to God, any more deserving, any more worthy of receiving salvation than anyone else. And we all, all, all need Jesus Christ to be saved. And so that should affect our mindset, that should change the way that we see people, that should, that should break down those walls of prejudice in our lives and in our hearts. As we look at others, we don't see them as as irrelevant, insignificant, inferior. We see them as people who equally, like ourselves, need Jesus Christ and need salvation. 
we're called as Christians to bring down the walls of division and hostility in our society. But it has to start in our own hearts first. As I read that list, perhaps there was one or two groups or one or two people in, in the back of your mind. You thought, I don't really care if they get saved. In fact, I'd go as far as saying I prefer that they didn't. We need to remember that this is how the Gentiles, us, were regarded by the Jews. But Jesus died to save us anyway. When we realise how unworthy and how undeserving we are, and that it is only by his grace that we are saved, it changes our hearts towards others. We're called to reach all of those groups that I mentioned before and more. At times this is going to mean breaking down, dividing walls of hostility in our neighbourhoods, in our schools, in our hospitals, wherever we find ourselves. There is much fear and distrust in our society, and we're called to be those who stand against prejudice and hatred for the love of people and the glory of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that we simply ignore sin and injustice in the world. As a church, we support IJM, International Justice Mission, who work to eradicate slavery. But I'm praying for the salvation of the slave drivers as well as the slaves. We need to know how much we've been saved from. The, the length and the extent to which Jesus Christ has gone in order for us to receive this amazing gift of salvation. And if, in the back of our minds, we think actually it's our right and, and we, we're allowed to just choose to be Christians, then actually, you know, it, yes, Jesus played his part, but I've also played my part. And, and God kind of owes me, because I could have picked any of the faiths, but actually I chose to be a Christian and I've lived for him. Um, you need to kill that mindset. <laughs> and that's what Paul's saying. You need to get out of your head this, this, this mindset that maybe somehow God owes you, or that you know, it's your choice, your decision, your right to be a Christian. It is entirely the work of Jesus Christ in each and every one of our lives. So, let's read the last few verses of this passage together. verse 19 says so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Before the Gentiles in Israel were strangers uh, and foreigners, they might live with the people of Israel, but they, had, they didn't own land and they had no rights. But it's not like this in the church. They are all citizens together. We are all citizens together. Citizens of King Jesus, citizens of the kingdom of God. We are all part of the same family of God. We are all his children, and God is our Father. 
And the picture goes beyond these two people groups merely living together or even being part of the same family because actually family members, to some extent, you can not see that often or, or ignore. Uh, we maybe have family members that we don't uh, spend as much time with or get on with as well. But the picture goes beyond this. And he, he goes to a picture of a, uh, of a building being built together by these people. Paul describes them as being built together into a single building with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, the kind of foundation holding everything together. And Paul says, you guys had better put your prejudices uh, to death because you very well might be placed like a brick between two bricks from the other people group who you detest and who you hate. And you're going to be stuck there and being built into this building, uh, into this church building. You need to recognise that actually all of us... uh, Everybody who is a Christian is being built together into this one building, uh, which is the church with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. Amen. So, you know, you might be placed next to somebody who previously you distrusted, who you uh, hated even, and actually God's saying, you're going to be placed alongside each other. You're going to be working together. You're going to be building this kingdom of God, this this church together uh, for God's name and for his glory. We recently went, uh, so I recently went on to uh, a Christians Across Watford retreat. So last week I spent two days at a Christians Across Watford retreat, and then this week I spent a couple of days uh, at a New Ground conference with the other church leaders um, from the New Ground churches. Um, so I spent quite a bit of time the last couple of weeks with other church leaders uh, in this town and beyond. And I was challenged to consider actually how much do I rejoice in the success of those churches? How much do I rejoice when others uh, come to faith at, at Wellspring, at St. Luke's, uh, North Bushy Baptist, at Wilder, South Oaks Baptist, and these other churches? We, we should have a greater mindset than just, uh, just ourselves, just our church, and just our friends. Actually, we, we want uh, the success and we want the growth and health of the church across Watford, New Frontiers Church, and actually our global church. Jesus unites together all believers in his name and builds all people into this one building. We are one people. We're not just X1 by ourselves in this town. We are the church of Watford in this town, the church of England in this country, and the church of the world. Sorry, I'm just checking what time I'm at. Our mission as a church is to serve God, to transform lives, and to build community. And the community that he's called us to build is not one of very kind of specific demographic. He's called us to build community uh, that looks diverse, that actually reaches to each people group and everybody in this town. And so I want to ask again, are you harboring any prejudices this morning? Do you need to repent because you think that you are much more deserving or much less deserving of the gospel than anyone else? And do you need to remember that God's gift of salvation is entirely his work this morning and repent of your attitude of entitlement? I wonder if I can invite the band to come back up again. I'd like us to sing a song that we sung earlier, Who O Lord Can Save Themselves. Um, And just as we we sing it, I want us to sing it as a prayer. A prayer of remembrance. 
who, O Lord, can save themselves, their own soul can see. None of us, none of us are able to save ourselves. And just to, again, just remind ourselves and to thank God for our salvation. Thank Jesus Christ that he came to die uh, to win that salvation for us. Um, But also as a prayer against any prejudices that we hold. We need to recognise that not only can we not save ourselves, but nobody in this world is capable of saving themselves. We need to be those ministers of reconciliation as well. We need to be people who go out to share, to spread the good news uh, to every, each and every person in this world. And there should be nothing that is a, a barrier. There should be no walls of hostility for us as Christians that would prevent us from going and reaching other people in this world.